0: As I've mentioned a few times now, most of chapters 2 through 4 in this letter are dealing with the rather immature and worldly perspective that the Corinthian church has with respect to leadership. They haven't matured in this area as rapidly as they ought to have done, and so Paul has rebuked them and made use of several accessible metaphors and illustrations in an extended effort to bring them up to speed on this matter. Here now in chapter 4, Paul begins to show them how this distinctly Christian view of leadership ought to be applied to their appraisal of the apostles and other Christian leaders. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. This is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. In order to make proper sense of this paragraph, obviously, we have to understand to whom Paul is referring when he says, this is how one should regard us. Who is the us in that paragraph? Kiampa and Rosner are helpful here. They say us here refers to leaders like Paul, Apollos, and Cephas, closed quote. This is, of course, the same group mentioned in 1 Corinthians 3.22, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world, or life, or death, or the present, or the future. All are yours, and you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. So Paul says that these leaders, important and gifted as they are, are not appropriate objects for your loyalty and devotion. They are merely servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Paul uses two very interesting words here to describe these first-level leaders. He says they are servants and stewards only. The first word translated here as servant is not the same Greek word used in chapter 3, verse 5, which was also translated into your English Bibles, most likely, as servants. That, however, was the Greek word diakonos. But this is the Greek word huperitas, and it originally meant under rower. This was the term used to refer to a subordinate officer on a ship. Paul is saying... We are not piloting this ship. I am not the captain. Jesus is the captain. He picks the direction and tells me to row. So don't worship me. We apostles are just sergeants and corporals in the army of King Jesus. The second word he uses there is the Greek word oikonomos, which refers to an estate manager or a major domo. In the ancient world, a rich landowner would not want to become a slave to his slaves, so he would hire a majordomo, someone who was slave to him, but master to all the other slaves. Leon Morris says here, This deputy was called an oikonomos. He held a responsible position, he was set over others, and directed the day-to-day affairs. But he was subject to a master, and was often a slave. Then, in relation to the master, he was a slave, but in relation to the slaves, he was the master. Closed quote. Did you hear that? Slave to the master, master to the slaves. That's what I am, Paul says. I am a slave of Christ. I have been given authority over you, but I am not your master. I am merely saying what Jesus tells me to say and doing what Jesus tells me to do. I'm not your master, but I'm not your employee either. And that's why Paul says in verse 3, It doesn't matter to me a great deal how you esteem my labor in your midst. You're not the judge of me. Jesus is the judge of me, and he will hold me to precise account. If I say what I'm supposed to say, and if I do what I'm supposed to do, I will receive a reward from him, not you, on judgment day. Verse 6, I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What, What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? So here Paul says that he has held himself and Apollos up as examples of how to apply this Christian perspective on leadership and authority. The second half of verse 6 is hard to translate. It's also hard to interpret. What what does Paul mean when he says that we must not go beyond what is written? While it is possible that Paul is referring to a well-known slogan in the Corinthian church, the context suggests that whatever the inspiration for the actual wording, the expression means that we must get our philosophy of leadership solely from the pages of Holy Scripture, and we must thoroughly audit everything we believe and endorse to ensure that nothing from the culture has crept in unawares. These alien cultural notions will only produce pride in your leaders and division in your church, therefore have nothing to do with them. In verse 8, Paul further demonstrates the incongruity of the leadership philosophy active in the church of Corinth with what truly accords to the way of the cross by appealing to the experiences of the apostles. He says rhetorically and somewhat sarcastically, Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you've become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we've become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, And we labor, working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. The key to understanding this heavily rhetorical paragraph is found in this repeated usage of the word already. Already you have it all. Already you are rich. C.K. Barrett says here that the Corinthians were behaving as if the age to come were already consummated, as if the saints had already taken over the kingdom, quote. They thought they had arrived. They thought they were already reigning with Christ. But the older, wiser, mature apostle understands that there is still a ways to go here, friends, and still some suffering to be experienced. Now, not to reveal my age, but this passage reminds me of the old Queen song that says, I want it all, I want it all, I want it all, and I want it now. In the song, that is explained as the dreams of youth, and that is exactly what Paul thinks of it as well. This over-realized eschatology is a further symptom of their basic immaturity. There are certain things in the Christian life that you just have to wait for, riches, rule, dignity, reward. These are things for later, not things for now, as ought to have been clear from the lives of the apostles. Who was closer to Jesus than they? And yet, who was more despised? Who suffered more deprivations? Who was subjected to more hardship and humiliation than the apostles? Obviously, if they didn't get to be rich, powerful, and appreciated in this world, then neither should we expect to experience those things now either. These are not already things, Paul says. These are sometime in the future things. Verse 14. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ, as I teach them everywhere in every church. Some are arrogant, as though I were not coming to you. But I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills. And I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love in a spirit of gentleness? Verses 8 to 13 were a bit sarcastic, but they were only intended to puncture a bubble of immature bravado and naivety. So like a good father, Paul now laughs, as it were, and assumes the smile and tone of loving affection. I'm I'm not trying to break your spirit. I'm just trying to teach you the ways of the world or in this case, the ways of the kingdom. It's it's my job as your spiritual dad to point you in the right direction. Look to my example, he says in verse 16. Now, at first glance, that might sound arrogant. Shouldn't Paul have said, "Look to the example of Jesus?" Well, in a sense, that is what he has done. Paul is saying that authentic Christian leadership is leadership in the way of the cross. Everything has to be thought about through the lens of the cross. But what does that look like? Such things are easy to say, but hard to visualize. So Paul says, look at how this works out in my life. Like Christ on the cross, Christian leaders like me, Paul says, are generally mocked and ridiculed by the world. Like Christ on the cross, Christian leaders like me, Paul says, are seen as weak and even as failures. Like Christ on the cross, Christian leaders like me are to think of themselves as nothing more than lowly servants. Jesus took up the towel and washed the feet of the disciples. I have compared myself and Peter and Apollos to migrant workers in a field. We are nothing. He is everything. Like Christ on the cross, Christian leaders like me are to rid themselves of all resentments and rivalries with their co-workers. Jesus sought only the glory of God. We, too, must eschew all glory and personal recognition. Like Christ on the cross, Christian leaders like me, Paul says, are to pour themselves out in obedience to the one who sent them, expecting to receive their reward Only when the work is finished. Like Christ on the cross, Christian leaders like me, says Paul, are not to try to look strong or powerful or wise in the ways of the world. Their eye is on the Master, and they seek only to please Him. That is what it means to lead like Christ on the cross. I've tried to live that out, Paul says. And to the extent that I have, you should follow me. That is why I've sent Timothy to you, to remind you of my ways. Now, we don't know a great deal about this visit by Timothy. It seems, based on what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 16, verse 10, that he was expected to arrive after the letter that Paul was writing. So, after they had received what we're reading now, what we call 1 Corinthians. Probably Paul sent Timothy on a bit of a loop with a few churches to check out before arriving eventually at Corinth, while the letter itself that he was writing was probably going to be sent back to Corinth directly through either Chloe's people or the three men mentioned in chapter 16, Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus. They were probably in Ephesus on business and thus were able to deliver the letter to the church directly upon their return. Regardless, Paul expected Timothy to flesh out the details and to remind them of how Paul and the other apostles conducted themselves as Christian leaders. Paul was hoping that Timothy's visit, plus the letter itself, would correct these problems in advance of his coming so that when he arrived, he could enjoy a pleasant visit with his beloved congregation as opposed to a painful one. Alas, it was not to be. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1, Paul refers to this visit, which was now in the past, as a painful visit. So, obviously, they were not prepared. They didn't respond to Paul's gentle fatherly corrections. So, they, they got the rod, as opposed to the spirit of gentleness. Paul dropped the hammer in person and then by a subsequent letter, which historians refer to actually as the severe letter, And then he left for a while so that they could think over what he had said. He basically told them, this is not optional, brothers and sisters. You will adopt the Christian lifestyle in full, or you will not be part of the Christian church at all. Those are your choices. He basically threatened to excommunicate the lot of them. Apparently, believing without behaving is not on the table. So he let them stew he let them weigh their options, and he let the Holy Spirit work. Now, not to spoil the ending of the story, but the good news is that they did eventually respond positively. That's why the letter we call Second Corinthians has a totally different feel to it. Paul did the hard work of a spiritual parent, and in the end, he reaped the harvest of repentance, growth, and Christian maturity. Thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you've appreciated the Into of the Word ministry, I'd like to personally invite you to pay it forward by supporting a mission project that is very close to my heart. The Letha Daycare Outreach Project is a church-based educational program designed to teach literacy, support low-income families, and share the gospel of Jesus Christ with boys and girls in rural South Africa. I've seen this project with my own eyes. I have shaken the hands of parents whose families have been helped. I have heard the songs and Bible verses out of the mouths of some of these dear children as they have been taught and helped to put their trust in the Lord. And nothing would be more gratifying to me than for you to show your appreciation for In of the Word by investing in these little ones. You can do that in one of two ways. You can give through the In of the Word app or by visiting the Into the Word website at IntoTheWord.ca. Just click on the Give tab and you'll find giving options for both Canadian and American listeners. This is a registered project with ABWE Canada and ABWE USA. So tax receipts are available to all eligible donors. Just identify where you're listening from and click on the Fund button and select Letha Daycare Outreach